0: Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of the murder and assault of a minor that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In
1: 1960, Sydney, Australia was a bustling metropolis down under. Its skyline was dominated by the Harbour Bridge, but construction had already begun on the jewel of the city, the Sydney Opera House. To fund
0: construction of the iconic structure, the state of New South Wales turned to a government-sponsored lottery. On June 1st, 1960, a traveling salesman named Basil Thorne received life-changing news.
1: He had just won 100,000 Australian pounds in the Sydney Opera House lottery. Basil was a loving husband and father of three who was barely making ends meet. So this lottery win was a godsend.
0: But Basil's good fortune would quickly turn into tragedy.
1: A little over a month after winning, Basil's eight-year-old son, Graham, was kidnapped and held for ransom. The nation banded together for the largest manhunt in Australia to date. But for all the searching, the Thorns never saw their little boy again. Welcome to Solved Murder's True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy.
0: And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives close the case.
1: You can find episodes of Solve Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free, exclusively on Spotify.
0: This is our first episode on the kidnapping of Graham Thorne. This week, we'll cover his abduction, the investigation into his disappearance, and the grim discovery of his murder. Next week, we'll cover the forensics that led police to uncover the kidnapper's identity and the trial that followed.
2: We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some
0: Eight-year-old Graham Thorne was tall for his age. He had fair hair and gaps between his teeth. He was a friendly, chatty little boy who always had a smile on his face.
1: Graham's morning routine was always the same. Every day around 8.15 a.m., he left his family's small rented apartment in Bondi Beach and walked a few blocks to the corner of Wellington and O'Brien Street.
0: There, he would wait for a friend of his mother's, who we'll call Patricia, to pick him up and take him to school, the prestigious Scott's College. Patricia was a friend of his mother's, and she also had two young sons who attended Scott's College.
1: While Graham waited for Patricia, he usually went inside the corner shop to chat with a shopkeeper and buy snacks. The shopkeeper enjoyed his little chats with Graham, noting that the boy always bought the same thing a package of potato chips. Then, around 8.30 a.m., Graham would head to the sidewalk and sit on his school case as he waited for Patricia to arrive around 8.40 a.m.
0: Thursday, July 7, 1960, began like any other day, though Graham was running a bit late. He kissed his mother goodbye at 8.30 a.m. and left for Wellington and O'Brien Street. Patricia departed her house with her two sons to pick Graham up. But when she arrived at 8.40, she was greeted by an empty corner. Graham wasn't there.
1: This had never happened before. She waited a few minutes, but he didn't appear. Worried, Patricia stepped inside the corner store to speak with the shopkeeper.
5: Good
4: morning. Hello there. Uh, have you seen a little boy? He's usually outside your store in his school clothes.
5: Oh, you mean Graham. He's a wise little tyke. Loves his potato chips. But I haven't seen him this morning. Is something wrong?
4: Well, maybe. I pick him up outside your shop every day and take him to school. But today, he's not here. You're sure you haven't seen him?
5: Absolutely. Perhaps he's sick.
4: No, no, I don't think so. If you see him, tell him his mother's worried.
5: I will. I'm sure he'll turn up. He's a charming boy."
0: Patricia then drove to Scott's College to see if he was in class. He was not. So Patricia headed back to Frida's and told her the news. Graham was missing.
1: Frida immediately called the police. At 9.30am, approximately an hour after Graham's disappearance, a sergeant arrived to get more information. To protect his privacy, we'll refer to him as Sergeant O'Rourke. And so, he's been missing how long?
6: Patricia always picks him up around 8.40, but he wasn't there. The shopkeeper hasn't seen him, nor his school. I'm just so worried that-
3: Calm down, ma'am. Uh, I'm sure he's just being a rascal, like most young boys. Uh, Might he have run into someone he knows? Gone on a lark?
6: He's very friendly. He'll talk to anyone, but- He wouldn't wander off on his own.
3: have a feeling we'll find him straight away. Now, what was he wearing?
6: Hello?
7: Is that you, Mrs. Thorne? Please give the phone to your husband.
6: What's this about?
7: I have your son.
6: (gasps) Frida, Frida, who is it? They're asking for Basil. You better take this, Sergeant.
3: Hello? Hello?
7: Mr. Thorne, I have your boy. I want 25,000 pounds before 5 o'clock this afternoon. I'm not fooling.
3: (laughs) 25,000 pounds? Where am I going to get that kind of money?
7: If I don't get the money before 5 o'clock, I'll feed the boy to the sharks.
6: Sergeant, what did he say?
1: Mrs. Thorne, I think your boy's been kidnapped. Amazingly, Sergeant O'Rourke, the first officer on the case, was one of the few people in Australia who didn't know that the Thorns were lottery winners. Frida explained that they had just won £100,000 in the Sydney Opera House lottery, equivalent to over $2 U.S. million in today's money.
0: Which meant that the Thorns, who previously didn't have enough money to buy one house, now had enough money to buy several.
1: Once Sergeant O'Rourke heard about the money, the motive was clear. He immediately alerted the police department about the kidnapping and ransom of young Graham Thorne.
0: While Freda met with the police, Basil was on an airplane flying home from a sales trip, completely unaware of the kidnapping. He was told the news by a police officer who met him in the Sydney airport. Basil was horrified to learn that the lottery win had put his family in danger.
1: In those days, there was no expectation of privacy like there is now. On June 2nd, the day after Basil was notified of winning the lottery, his picture and home address had been splashed all over the news. The police believed that this was how the kidnapper was able to find the thorns and target young Graham.
0: To prevent further harm to the Thorns, the police tried to keep Graham's kidnapping under wraps. But a reporter had already been tipped off.
1: The abduction and ransoming of a child had never occurred before in Australia. Australians knew that it happened in other parts of the world, but they never conceived that it could happen on their soil. This was a front-page story.
0: It was published in the afternoon edition of the paper, just a few hours after Graham was kidnapped. Before long, the entire country was grappling with the news that a little boy had been taken for
1: money. The police had already started an intense door-to-door search of the area. When the story broke, they decided to embrace the publicity and ask people to call in with tips.
0: While authorities searched for Graham, detectives were hard at work generating theories on who the kidnapper could be.
4: This man on the phone, the kidnapper, you say he had an accent?
3: Yes, a distinctly European accent.
4: From what country?
3: I couldn't place it. It felt Eastern European or maybe Greek.
4: Perhaps he's an immigrant. They're poor and some of them come from lawless nations.
3: But how did a strange immigrant man kidnap a boy in broad daylight on busy streets without anyone seeing it happen?
4: He must have been planning this for some time. It's the only explanation. Perhaps the kidnapper spun a yarn and the boy went willingly?
3: Or perhaps, perhaps the man was working with someone. A woman, a kindly woman, who convinced the boy to go with her.
4: Yes, yes, that's it. A child is much more likely to trust a strange woman than a strange man.
3: There must be more than one kidnapper involved
1: here. Coming up, detectives get their first big break in the case. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify.
2: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be.
0: On July 7th, 1960, eight-year-old Graham Thorne was kidnapped and held for ransom. The kidnapper demanded 25,000 Australian pounds by 5 p.m. that day, or the Thorns would never
1: see their boy again. Based on the caller's accent, the police believed that the kidnapper was an immigrant, possibly Eastern European. But Graham was taken on a busy street without anyone noticing. Why would he go quietly with a strange man? So perhaps he was approached by a female accomplice.
0: While the police continued to work all angles of the case, there was a 24 hour police presence at the Thorns' apartment, waiting for the kidnapper to call back.
1: Basil Thorne had the £25,000 ready to hand over at a moment's notice and was willing to give up his whole £100,000 win. He and Frida anxiously awaited the next call detailing instructions for getting their son back. But 5 p.m. came and went without any more communication from the kidnapper.
0: That night, the police chief decided to hold a press conference. He asked the public to call in if they had any information on the boy's whereabouts. Basil also made a personal plea for the return of his son.
7: I just want to say to you, Whoever you are, please. Graham is my son. I don't care about the money. I just want my boy home in one piece. For God's sake.
0: The stress weighed heavily on both Basil and Frida. A doctor had to be called for Frida, who was falling into hysterics and needed to be medicated. All of Australia was on the edge of their seats, desperately hoping that Graham was found alive.
1: Finally, at 9:47 p.m, they got a second call from the kidnapper. A detective pretending to be, Basil Thorne answered, "Determined to keep the kidnapper on the phone long enough to trace the call.:
5: Hello.
7: Basil Thorne? Yes, that's me.: Excellent. I'm happy to hear that you value the life of your son.
5: Yes, yes, of course. I just want him back safe and sound.
7: Then here is what you need to do. Take the money, put it in two paper bags,
5: Wait, wait, slow down. This is all going so fast. Let me... let me find a pencil and paper to write this down so I get it all. Hello? Hello? He's gone.
0: The kidnapper had hung up without telling the Thorns where to drop the money. The police scrambled to figure out, what had gone
1: wrong? Desperate for leads, they followed up on the numerous tips from the public. Most were dead ends, but there was one promising call that came in shortly after Graham's disappearance. It was from a gas station owner in Pennant Hills, 18 miles northwest of where Graham was taken.
4: Graham tip Line, how may I help you?
3: I've got important information concerning the kidnapping of Graham Thorne.
4: I'm sure you do.
3: I swear I just saw him and the kidnappers. Swear on my life.
4: Please tell me exactly what it is you saw, sir.
3: It was two men, a woman, and a boy matching Graham's description. They looked foreign. Italian or Maltese, perhaps?
4: And you're certain that the boy looked like Graham Thorne?
3: Spitting image of what I've seen on TV. They pulled into the station late at night around 10 p.m. after waiting across the street for another customer to leave. That's what made me notice them. They wanted a full tank of petrol and a barrel more for the road. Looked like they were heading out of town. It was very suspicious. Very. And the car was a black Dodge. A 1950 model, I believe, with no front plates.
4: Just a moment, sir. Let me connect you with one of our detectives straight away. Hold, please. But as
0: much as they searched for it, police were unable to find the black Dodge. They worried they'd lost their most promising lead.
1: Graham Thorne's case file was fast becoming the largest one in the history of the New South Wales Police Department. Every single tip was logged and followed up on, but none of them were helpful. Meanwhile, the kidnapper continued his radio silence.
0: Then, late at night on July 8th, the police received a phone call. A concerned citizen had found a child's school case in a park in French's Forest, a bushland area about 14 miles north of where Graham was kidnapped. When the police arrived, they saw that the case had a name written on it, G. Thorne.
1: They had found Graham's school case, which meant they needed to expand the search zone and widen the already vast manhunt. Hundreds of police and soldiers began combing the area where it was found.
0: The search perimeter was also expanded to include neighboring cities and towns, and crews worked through the weekend. The police raced against the clock to find Graham alive.
1: 5,000 posters with Graham's picture on them were printed and distributed. Newspaper publishers offered a 15,000-pound reward for information on Graham Thorne, And the new South Wales government announced a 5,000-pound bonus.
0: The manhunt became one of the largest in Australian history. It seemed that everyone was pitching in to find Australia's beloved son, Graham.
1: While authorities searched, the police had been able to trace the two phone calls from the kidnapper. The first one had come from a phone box just north of the Spit Bridge, about 20 minutes north from Graham's home.
0: The second call late that evening had come from a phone box in Seaforth. It was the same area where Graham's school case was found. But knowing where the kidnapper called from ultimately didn't lead police to the criminal himself.
1: When police questioned the people who lived in the Thorns neighborhood, a portrait of the suspect began to emerge. Several people reported seeing a man sitting on a bench outside the Thorns apartment building in the week before the kidnapping occurred.
0: In one report, the man was seen on the bench in the morning between 7.15 and 9, with a newspaper in front of his face. One witness described the man as Caucasian, about 35 to 40 years old, dark wavy hair, thick dark eyebrows, and a distinctly foreign look about him.
1: While detectives continued to comb the thorns' neighbors for leads, they were also questioning Basil and Frida, they wanted to know if either of them had any unusual interactions in the weeks between winning the lottery and Graham's disappearance.
0: Frida and Basil remembered a very odd visitor about three weeks prior to the kidnapping, who came a few hours after dinner time. It was an unusual time for them to receive visitors, making the incident memorable.
6: Hello?
7: I'm looking for Mr. Bogner.
6: Who? The previous tenant was a Mr. Bailey, not Bogner.
7: This is what I have for Mr. Bogner's address.
6: Well, we've only been here about 12 months. You should try our neighbor upstairs. She's been here a lot longer.
7: Is your phone number 307113? How did you
6: get that number?
7: I know more than you think. I'm a private investigator, so is that the number?
6: Well, yes, that's the number, but it's not even been connected yet.
1: In Australia in the 1960s, it wouldn't have been difficult to get someone's phone number, even one that was unlisted or not yet connected. Just as the Thorns' photos and address were published in the newspaper without any concern for their privacy, so too could anyone contact the operator and, with a little cajoling, be given someone's unlisted phone number.
0: After this so-called private investigator talked to Frida, he also went to talk to the lady who lived up the stairs. The next day, Frida and her neighbor got together and discussed the incident.
4: He's an eccentric, I'd say. Most private investigators are. I was trying to figure out his background.
6: I found him quite
4: odd. Did you know of this Mr. Bogner he was looking for? Bogner? Who's Bogner? Bogner? He asked me about Mr. Bailey, who used to live in your apartment. Well, I told him about Mr. Bailey, but he came to me asking about a Mr. Bogner. He never mentioned a Bogner to me. Said he was looking for a Mr. Bailey. That's frightfully odd. I wonder why he would change a
0: story like that.
6: He must have been after something else.
0: At the time, Frida had been very suspicious of this so-called private investigator who had knowledge of their not-yet-connected phone number and told her neighbor a different story.
1: All of this ensured that she had a very clear memory of what he looked like. Even though the event had happened three weeks earlier, she was able to give the police quite a lot of detail on the person.
0: Her description of this man matched the ones her neighbors gave, late 30s with dark wavy hair and a foreign look about him. But what clinched it for everyone was when Frida remarked that the man had a distinctly European accent, just like the man who'd made the first two ransom calls.
1: It seemed the kidnapper had taken the incredibly bold step of revealing himself to Graham's parents before the kidnapping. And now... The police hope to turn this information to their advantage and find both the kidnapper and Graham alive. Coming
0: up, a gruesome discovery provides a clearer piece of the puzzle.
1: On the night of eight-year-old Graham Thorne's disappearance, his kidnapper missed his own 5 p.m. deadline to contact the Thorns. He'd finally called at 9.47 p.m. to discuss the money drop, but hung up suddenly.
0: Thanks to the story being front-page news, all of Australia was emotionally involved in the kidnapping, and many local citizens were physically involved as volunteers in the search. Graham's school case had been found, and the portrait of a suspect was starting to emerge, but Graham's location was still a mystery.
1: Then, on Monday, July 11th, four days after his kidnapping, the police had their next big break. Only a mile away from where Graham's school case was found, they discovered more of Graham's belongings.
0: They found a Scots College school cap, Graham's coat, and a math textbook. There was also a plastic lunch sack with all of the food still untouched, including the peeled apple wrapped in plastic wrap. This was exactly how Frida lovingly prepared apples for Graham's school lunches. And then more witnesses came forward with vital information. To protect their privacy, we'll refer to these witnesses as Craig and Dottie. They contacted the police to report a suspicious vehicle.
1: On the morning of July 7th, before Graham was kidnapped, Craig and Dottie were together, driving down Francis Street when they noticed a car parked at the corner of Wellington and Francis. This corner was along the exact stretch of road where the police assumed Graham had been taken.
7: So,
5: what was so special about this car? Well, it's not the car so much. It's the way it was
6: parked. It was halfway up on the curb and halfway out into the street.
5: When I was driving, I had to swerve to avoid hitting the rear end.
6: And anyone walking on the footpath would not have been able to walk straight. They would have had to go around the front end of the car.
7: Well, the driver certainly sounds like an idiot, but that doesn't make him a kidnapper. We saw the
5: driver. He was around 5'10", I'd say in his late 30s with olive skin and dark wavy hair. He wore an overcoat and felt hat.
6: It was a face you're not likely to forget.
0: Hmm.
7: Do you remember anything about this car?
5: It was a 1955 Ford Custom Line in iridescent blue.
7: That's extremely specific. How can you be sure? Officer,
5: I have a knack for cars.
6: He really does. He's memorized the make and model
0: of every car ever on the road.
7: We'll see about that.
0: The police were confident this man that Craig and Dottie had noticed was the ransom caller. But they doubted that Craig could pinpoint the make and model of the car so exactly, they put his car knowledge to the test.
1: They drove him around the Bondi Beach back streets and showed him cars that they had already noted to see if Craig could identify cars quickly and correctly. Craig picked out every one.
0: Which meant... They now had their suspect's vehicle, a 1955 Ford Custom Line in iridescent blue. All they had to do was comb the Department of Motor Transport vehicle records and track down the owners.
1: However, this proved to be a daunting task. There were 4,000 1955 Ford Custom Line cars registered. You couldn't filter them by color.
0: It took them days to go through every single document, note the names of the owners, and call them with questions.
1: Unfortunately, all the other leads in Graham's case had gone cold. The discovery of his school case and his personal effects, the school cap, the math textbook, lunch bag, and the apple, yielded no new information that the police could use to narrow down his location.
0: Meanwhile, the manhunt continued, getting larger and larger, more than a week had passed since Graham's disappearance. And while they had a description of a suspect and a car and model, they were no closer to discovering the identity of the kidnapper.
1: During this period, the Thorns were subjected to numerous hoax phone calls from people pretending to be the kidnapper and demanding the ransom.
0: Whenever one of these calls would come in, Basil would ask to talk to Graham on the phone, But these supposed kidnappers would not allow that. So then Basil would ask the kidnappers to prove it was Graham by having Graham give the kidnappers answers to specific questions, like the name of a school friend or the last place they went on vacation.
1: Of course, none of these questions could ever be answered correctly because none of these people actually had Graham. They just wanted to cheat the thorns out of their prize money.
0: Unfortunately... Basil and Frida had to keep their phone line open and take every single one of these hoax calls seriously. They had to stay by the phone with the 25,000 pounds ready in case the real kidnapper called back.
1: Each new call brought Basil and Frida hope that they would see their son again, and crushing disappointment when they realized it was a hoax. It was mentally and emotionally exhausting, Meanwhile, the original caller, the man with the European accent, never called back.
0: And then on August 16th, over five weeks after Graham's disappearance, the case would see its biggest break. In Seaforth, near where Graham's personal effects had been found, three young kids were playing in a vacant lot where they noticed an old rolled-up rug nearby.
1: One of these kids went home and notified their parents of this suspicious-looking object. That night, the parents inspected the abandoned rug and realized there was something hidden inside. It was the body of Graham Thorne.
0: Basil and Frida's greatest fear had been realized. Their little boy was never coming home.
1: again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with part two of the kidnapping and murder of Graham Thorne. We'll learn how the forensics from Graham Thorne's body revealed the killer's identity and led to his arrest. For more information on Graham Thorne's murder, amongst the many sources we used, we found Kidnapped, the crime that shocked the nation by Mark Tedeschi to be extremely helpful to our research.
0: You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: (sighs) If we live till next time.
1: Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Shilpi Roy, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Eddie Lee, Julian Smith, Rebecca Thomas, and Kimlin Tran. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy.